Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. We are your favoritist biblical history podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I am here with Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh, who is about to go to a really fun concert. You just told me you're going to an ABBA concert. This is this the original ABBA? No, 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 no. Though there is that ABBA Voyager thing, actually, but um, well, what's that? down in London. But no, that, that that's where they have the holograms. And things. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you know. I mean, I would love to go to that. I have to say, but this is a tribute band. I I'm really really keen on tribute bands because it's mainly because you know i like to go and hear the music without paying too much yeah, yeah. but um yeah and you can imagine <laughs> no i'm a big, big fan of theater and pantomime and all of these things so um yeah no tonight i am going to hear an abba tribute band awesome. performing which is our link into to today's topic exactly yeah today we we're talking about something that until a week ago i had never heard of and then when I read the book by our guest, I was like, wait a second, this kind of opens up this, the, uh, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament to an entirely different way of looking. It's called performance criticism. So the idea that these texts, you know, were not only written down, obviously, but when they were read out loud to people, it was more than just somebody sitting there reading from a written text they were performing it in a way that maybe we would think of as as theater today or as you know they're like a david and goliath tribute band maybe <laughs> something like that <laughs> so we are going to be centering our discussion on the very famous uh, tale of david and goliath but looking at it through this lens of performance criticism and we have a a terrific guest we have Jonathan Freeman making his second appearance on Biblical Time Machine he talked about ancient music last time and now he's talking about a book that he wrote called Goliath as Gentle Giant Sympathetic Portrayals in Popular Culture the sympathetic portrayals part we're not really talking about but what he gets into at the beginning of his book is this idea that the story of David and Goliath is a great example of how a story gets variations and interesting contradictions because of the way that it was told and written down and retold and performed over the centuries and even the millennia. But if you remember, Jonathan is professor of Jewish music history and the academic dean of the Master of Jewish Studies program and the rabbinical school at the Academy for Jewish Religion in California. And he's the co-host of a podcast called Amusing Jews. And it's an interview show. They bring on guests and they celebrate kind of Jewish contributors and contributions to mostly American popular culture. But he, he gets on uh, people that have written uh, and performed in some famous TV shows and movies. And it's really interesting. So please check out Amusing Jews. But before we talk to Jonathan, Helen, we have to announce the first winner of our SBL Study Bible giveaway. Thanks to all who have subscribed to the Time Travelers Club to be in the running for one of 10 copies of the SBL Study Bible. Our first winner is Shelly Moss. Congratulations, Shelly, and thank you for subscribing to the Time Travelers Club. Your support helps make this show possible. We'll have more details about this giveaway at the end of the episode. But right now, let's get to our conversation with Jonathan about performing David and Goliath. Hello again, Jonathan Friedman, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. Oh, it's good to be back. (laughs) 
All right. Well, last time we talked about music in the ancient world, sort of music in ancient Israel. We're not talking about that at all. We're jumping to a completely different topic because you were one of those people who writes and thinks about such a diverse array of, of stuff to do with, with the Hebrew Bible and the ancient world. So now we're skipping over to the famous story of David and Goliath. I was fascinated when I read the the book that you sent, the book that you've written, to learn that the way that I think about oral tradition and written texts might not be the way it is. Like, I think I can't be alone in assuming that stories like David and Goliath were told, you know, orally spread for hundreds, I don't know, thousands of years around campfires and stuff like that, these kind of famous heroic tales. And then only much later did somebody like sit down and, and put them into print, and that's what we have in the Hebrew Bible. But you're telling me that this might not be the case. So please explain. Yeah, so first of all, that theory that you present is very normal, you know, <laughs> to assume that history unfolds in this way. But it does assume predictable stages from an oral illiterate tradition mm. to a written literate form uh, in which the oral tradition preserves something that's very sturdy and stable uh, for generations, as you're alluding to, mm. until it's finally enshrined in writing. So anyone who's played the game of telephone knows that even passing a story from one person to the next can introduce all kinds of variations, intentional or otherwise. And if we extrapolate that process over centuries, millennia, uh, in innumerable settings and retellings and regional variants and so forth, all those contexts and ideological factors and everything else, uh, it's pretty easy to see that however that story might have originated would have gone through innumerable changes mm -hmm. by the time it gets to any kind of a written form. And the second part of that is the written form does not uh, sort of uh, eliminate the oral tradition. The oral tradition continues. Mm. So if we look at David and Goliath, as we find it in 1 Samuel 17, we might actually better appreciate it as a point along the transmission as a, as opposed to kind of the end point. Uh, okay. Meaning that that version is probably one of many versions that were written down at different points, and yet the story continued to unfold. Uh, so one thing to remember, I think, when we're dealing with oral tradition and literacy and these kinds of things is that the literacy rate in the ancient world, ancient Near East, the biblical world, was only about 5% mm. when we get to the Roman period, and that's quite late. Mm. Uh, the time of David, maybe it was only around 1%. Mm. So people are hearing stories and telling stories and acting out stories, and all of those beautiful, fluid, sort of improvisatory elements that come when we're telling and retelling, those have to factor into that uh, oral tradition in some way. It's not that s stable process that ends with, finally, it gets written down. Sure, sure. So you think then that these these texts aren't just written down and then read out by you know the one person in the group who happens to be able to read but so so what you're suggesting then is that they're actually kind of performed this is a kind of a uh, a, a thing like the theater or something like that yeah and i think that's where the sitting around the campfire idea might actually mm. work if we like that image uh because 
performance is really the primary method of transmitting information in an oral culture. Again, people aren't reading this stuff, they're hearing it and they're passing it along orally. So we can define performance also in a rather broad way, uh, Broadway, in fact, <laughs> hey, some element of, of song and dance. <laughs> yeah. um, but ultimately, you know, the, the oral telling and retelling of a short or lengthy story tradition in formal and informal settings by trained and untrained people, all of this stuff is a part of that performative process. And it can include singing and exaggerated speech and sound effects and dancing and chanting and play acting and reenacting and all of those kinds of elements. So, you know, this is speculative, but just imagine somebody plays the role of David and somebody plays the role of Goliath and another Saul and so forth and so on. That's how stories are told. And then and then somebody's um, in the background playing music because you you you're, you know all about the music. So there's somebody yeah, playing I mean, a lute a, and a, a lyre or something. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that would be a part of the, the drama, mm. right? And part of that idea. And it's important to note, too, that, you know, our concept of time as a very linear thing is really not indigenous to the ancient Near East either. So if you're dealing in a culture that understands time more cyclically, where each time you tell a story, each time you reenact a story, it's as if it's happening for the first time. This also helps us to understand why bringing in new elements and bringing in sort of current events and so forth Mm -hmm. would be acceptable Hmm. and actually invited and probably conventional in those kinds of settings. I think of it like a jazz composition, actually. So speaking of music, If you look at at jazz, you got the melody, which is kind of like a basic roadmap. And then you maybe have the chord structure, which is like the broader framework of this piece. But each time it's performed, it's performed differently. There's this idea of improvisation being um, sort of composition in performance so that the performer and the composer are one and the same, Mm. as opposed to classical music, which is essentially defined as trying your darndest to interpret what the composer wanted you to do. And really the, the value of a compositional um, performance in the, in the classical sense is getting it right. Yeah. You know, every note. which is probably more like, like our, you know, contemporary understanding of the written word. Mm. You know, the, the word is the final thing. A lot of people's view of the Bible is, you know, if it's not written in there, it, it's mm. not, it's not the word, you know, um, that's a very different thing than the world that gave rise to the Bible. Oh, that's, I think that's a wonderful metaphor. Mm, yeah. The jazz metaphor, I think makes a lot of sense in what we're talking about. Cause it's like a jazz piece. Like it has a name, like give me a name of a jazz song. Cause I'm, I'm blanking. What's like all of me or something. Like, right. So it's like, like everybody knows like yeah. the band is going to start playing all of me and you're going to recognize this is all of me. But like you said, it's going to be a little different every time. And the soloists are going to do a different thing. So we have a story that we call David and Goliath. But there, there must have been so many variations in how it was told. So, yeah, what what you're describing is also a field of study that I was not aware of that is called performance criticism. So, right? So people are looking at ancient texts from that perspective of this thing was not just told and wasn't just read or written down, but it was performed in some way. So something that I, I got out of your book was, is this... One of the reasons why we think or can explain kind of variance in stories 
in the Bible that we'll see the something told differently twice, even in the same text. Is is that part of, of why we think that was happening? Yeah, that's very astute. So the field of performance criticism is fairly new. One of the founders of this study is David Rhodes, and he describes the written text of the Bible as archaeological fragments or the fossil remains mm. of an oral culture, meaning that, again, it sort of uh, is it just a, an essence or a sense, one version, perhaps, of a much broader, more fluid uh, world of storytelling. So the standard way of looking at contradictions and repetitions and the things you're alluding to is to look politically. You know, these are politically driven uh, takes on particular events or episodes where, you know, we want our hero to be the hero and we want this uh, location to be the center location. And those variations can happen as a result. It is assumed of, you know, different groups vying for a place at the table mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, vying for power within this edited document, right? Documentary hypothesis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that can really only take us so far because if it's true that stories were told and retold over and over and over, uh, it would make sense that the written record would actually uh, not only include evidence of this in the form of contradictions, anachronisms, things that really shouldn't be there in the time and place that is being described, um, but also, you know, that it was okay with that yeah. in the sense that the editors were coming from this same world of oral tradition and these contradictions that we get so caught up in trying to explain or, you know, saying, aha, look at this contradiction. <laughs> They're not even really contradictions in the sense that um, the existence of multiple variations was the norm and was that was expected, you know? So a great example of that is <clears throat> in the story of Abraham in Genesis, he's got camels, but camels would not be domesticated in that region for another thousand years mm. after Abraham. <laughs> but again, if you're telling the story of Abraham to people who have camels, then why don't you bring in camels as a reference point? Because that's something the audience would have some, you know, understanding of. It's as if, you know, we're looking um, a thousand years ago and we're saying, okay, we're going to have a zoom meeting, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in the medieval period. Um, it seems weird but again, you got to use contemporary reference points because that that is itself a marker that these stories are being told mm. again and again in different places at different times. But that makes sense, though, doesn't it? Because that I mean, that's basic storytelling. You bring in people's lives, what they're used to, and I mean, for for a lot of people, they they wouldn't have had a historic awareness of when camels <laughs> came in. They just know that there's camels around now. But what, what, one of the things I I always wonder with performance criticism, because you have it in the New Testament as well, mm -hmm. yeah. um, but I think it probably works better in the Old Testament, or at least mm -hmm. some bits of it, or the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew scriptures. What what happens when then you've got the text written down. Um, are, are people still sort of riffing on it or, or are they, I mean, I guess, cause you still got very low literacy levels, haven't you? I mean, do you just have the Torah scroll there and somebody is still kind of reading out their version of the, the scroll or, or how do you imagine that's happening? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there is evidence of that in, in Ezra, the book of Ezra, 
um, which, you know, it's, it's polemical and, and a very mm. much a political document, but it does describe the low literacy rate, essentially, of the people of Jerusalem and the need to read from the book of the law, the Torah, as it were, uh, because people don't have access to literacy themselves. So this idea of cantillation or chanting um, important scripture, such as the Torah, that's an age-old custom. So even when, again, when something is written down, as you're alluding to, there's still that performative aspect to it. It's not that people are sitting around reading independently because they have such uh, intimate knowledge of all the letters and and the vocabulary. It's really an oral tradition even after writing takes place. All right. So let's get back to our discussion of David and Goliath, because again, you you pointed out some some things that I never noticed in these stories. So like you said, First Samuel, like 16, 17, this is where we find the story of David and Goliath in the Hebrew Bible. And what's crazy is you have these three chapters in a row that tell three very different accounts of how David, you know, meets Saul, how how he gets involved in this whole thing. And each of them seems to have no memory of the one that comes before it. Anyway, can you can you explain these sort of three different accounts we have to how we meet uh, David for the first time, three times? Yeah, this is a fun aspect of the Davidic narrative for sure. So, you know, there are three stories, as you're alluding to. Um, and they were chosen by the editors, we can assume, from a mul- multiplicity mm. of options. Um, but again, the, the simple fact is that if we want to look at the oral sort of remnants in the biblical text, then it makes sense that they would be comfortable putting these three variants side by side. The idea that, um, you know, there are obvious contradictions here. It's obvious that he's meeting Saul three times <laughs> or two times and implied in, in the first one. Yeah. The notion that you know, these are independent stories didn't bother the editors. And and what are these stories? So one way to look at this is uh, through the lens of just storytelling in general. Christopher Booker wrote this famous book, The Seven Basic Plots, Mm. where he basically distills all of world literature into seven stories Mm. or seven story types. Uh, But part of that is, you know, a micro feature, a a sub-feature of that, is this notion of escalating threes that you have in many stories, like three episodes that will lead to a culmination point. And they tend to escalate in drama, escalate in sort of visceral interest and that kind of thing. So with the rise of David, the first is that pastoral story of him being anointed by the prophet Samuel from the sons of Jesse, kind of a dry story, as it were. (laughs) although there's oil, so there's a little bit of uh, <laughs> lubrication. <laughs> some, uh, some lubrication there. But the, the second is, um, you know, he's a liar player and he's brought in to soothe uh, Saul, who's going through some mental anguish. Mm-hmm. And then the third is really the main event, which is David versus Goliath and that kind of uh, dramatic wrestling match as it's sometimes described mm. or as i like to describe it wrestling because i'm a <laughs> okay. fan of, i'm a fan of professional wrestling so you got like the the heel and the baby oh, face yeah. and anyway if you're 
if your listeners are interested in wrestling, they can make their own comparison. <laughs> Basically, Goliath is Andre the Giant. So all of that is to say that you've got um, these escalating uh, events that are kind of drawn from the different um, you know, story traditions, but organized in such a way that it sort of has this dramatic um, you know, increase into that climax. Cause do you, and well, I was just going to ask, yeah. like, is it is it clear from examples like this that there must have been a really rich David story tradition, right? Like, it sounds like he's just one of those characters that must have had so many different stories told about. Yeah, and I would say it's true for a lot of the biblical characters. Um, Saul, as it happens, also has his own three escalating okay. stories of how he becomes king, if you want to draw a parallel. Mm-hmm. Uh, because first he has his private anointing by Samuel, very similar to what happens in the David story. And then there's the story of Samuel choosing him by lot and he's hiding. And there's a little more drama here because we have a reluctant king. Uh, and then the third is the main event where he becomes king after a military victory over the Amorites. Hmm. So, I mean, it, it, wow. it very parallels, parallel. it tracks yeah. very closely. Hmm. Yeah. Um. So, you know, getting back to the the idea of the escalating threes, which I think is really helpful here. You can look at the three caves of the Aladdin story, the three little pigs and, you know, the each of the pigs making their own structure. Um, <laughs> the three wolves, or the, sorry, the three wolf encounters, rather, in the uh, Little Red Riding Hood, the three ghosts in A Christmas Carol, uh, the three visits to the giant's castle in Jack and the Beanstalk, there are all these iterations of three. And again, they kind of escalate from a more mundane account to the more dramatic. It is three denials. I mean, it comes yeah, together exactly. in the Gospels as well. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And I, again, it apparently it's a universal feature. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I've heard that. So in your book, you talk about gobbets then. What are <laughs> this funny word, gobbets? What 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 are gobbets and, and, and what are they doing in, in these ancient texts? Yeah, so gobbet, as far as I know, is um, sort of an old French derived term for a chunk of food or a chunk of meat. So it's uh, little little chunks, little nuggets as we might call them today. Yeah, um, we had them in my Latin O-level, I remember. Little gobbets, these uh, little chunks yeah. of Latin that you had to translate. And, well, if you could, and <laughs> have some go at thinking yeah. about what they meant. Yeah, so these would basically be um, generic markers that would function as registers in a story. So these could be story patterns, names of characters, objects that are important in a story, key phrases, uh kind of the general structure, the general theme, basically the outline, the little, right. little mm-hmm. uh, bullet points, as it were, uh, right. for a storytelling. <laughs> Something that you could remember in a semi-rigid order, but also kind of fill in the gaps, mm-hmm. right? Fill in the, the points in between. A good way to think of this actually in the biblical text itself is the story of Noah and the ark. If you look at that story, you know, the assumption going into it is Noah is a very important character, uh, heroic, virtuous, all those things. But there's a lot of stuff missing from that story. For the, you know, one of those things would be, you know, the world has become corrupted, but we don't know really what that means. Mm. 
So you're able as a storyteller to bring in the corruption of your day, let's say, hmm. and sort of oh, read that into the into the yeah. story. Noah doesn't have any spoken dialogue or, or he doesn't have any lines at all. Is that true? In the story. So yeah, he doesn't speak. Wow. So in that sense, you can basically read in a character. Like what is a virtuous character in our time and place? You know, who would be the, the virtuous person among us? Let's make Noah that type of a character. So you have the basic points. You have the animals and the flood and the ark and all these beautiful things. But it's such a bare bones, economically written story, not because uh, it couldn't have been written with more detail, but the absence of detail was a preference. Hmm. It's, again, a remnant of this oral hmm. tradition where you got the gobbets, you got the, the structure, the framework, the characters, the elements, and then you want to play around with it or retell it in, a, in an enticing way. That's really what keeps these stories alive and transmittable over the years. I think... We sometimes get confused about the term tradition, uh, just generally speaking, as something that's very stable and doesn't change as time goes on. But in fact, without innovation and without creativity, there would be no tradition. Mm. Think of all the holidays we celebrate or all the all the events that we commemorate and so forth. If we weren't bringing something new into the experience, consciously or not, over the years, these things wouldn't exist anymore. We have to change recipes because... You know, certain uh, food items yeah. go out of style or, or aren't available yeah. anymore. Um, but it's still that dish. It just has different components, you know? Well, something – so I, I I love this idea of gobbets, and I love, you know, tying it back to the idea of performance in particular, how, like you said, you have this text. So maybe at some point this text, you know, is written down, but it's, like you said, kept – sort of purposefully bare bones. So it is more of an outline that allows a performer to fill in the gaps. Something you referenced with this idea of, of bare gobbets. So these are almost like points in a story that some performer a thousand years ago would have known what to do with. But for us, they show up in the text and we're like, what is this character that just popped in for one line that we've never heard of before? So can you, can you find some example or yeah. tell us some examples of those? Cause I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, so these bear gobbets, uh, these would be things like names that only appear in genealogical lists mm. with no stories or details attached to them, maybe just how long they lived. And yeah, a lot of they, those. Yeah, <laughs> the begats and the, those kinds of things. But we don't know anything about these characters other than their names, so they must have been important. Mm. So we can assume that there was a broader, more robust story tradition, locally regionalized kind of folk hero stuff. Mm associated with each of these names that are just names. And if you knew who the names were, it would make sense. It's sort of like us mentioning, um, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln. And you don't have to say anything else than the name because it's a name that we maybe know, right? Maybe not Helen. Or even that. They taught you that stuff? Because oh, okay. we know nothing about <laughs> British history, so I'm, I apologize. <laughs> King George. Just say the name and you yeah, get the right, idea. Right, right. Anyway. Um, but certainly, uh, there could also be episodes that seem to be like fragments, little story mm. fragments that don't seem to go anywhere. They just kind of appear and disappear before you know it, uh, just in a verse or two. Um, and, you know, references even to other books or other stories that are not in the, the Bible itself, 
that would have maybe signaled mm. to the audience like, oh yeah, that story. Uh, actually, instruments are very similar, uh, as we talked about before, in the sense that instruments are named, but they're not described because the culture knew what a, you know what this particular keynore was or yeah. you know everything that the shofar represented or whatever it might have been. And there's a great example of this in the story of, of David. It's kind of like the extended story of David and Goliath. After um, David is sort of fleeing from Saul, he, he goes to a town called Nob and he encounters Ahimelech, who's a priest. And Ahimelech says, uh, you know, we have this sword of Goliath here. You should, you should pick it up. You should retrieve it. Uh, which is really odd because we know that David uh, already had killed Goliath cert, uh, you know, a number of uh, chapters earlier. Mm. And there's this book by Stanley Isser called The Sword of Goliath, which talks about how this brief mention of a sword of Goliath that only happens here and there's no context and it's kind of mysterious was probably one of these allusions to folklore that's missing from the biblical account. And he says that it's probably like Excalibur, actually, hmm. that there was this magical sword that whoever possessed it would become the king. And this is yet another one of those stories of how David became the king of Israel hmm. by lifting this sword. Um, and what's really quite interesting about that is uh, something that uh, we may talk a little bit about. This place of Nob, this town, that's where another guy killed Goliath. Not David. Yeah. So, so this is something you you have in your book, don't you? You do, do this sort of um, really detailed analysis of the wording and descriptions in the the David and Goliath story or stories, if if um, if might be better to call it that. And and you 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 find this other character, Elhanan, and um, suggest that he's the original slayer of Goliath. So what's what's going on there? And and how come that David gets all the glory in the end? <laughs> yeah, so this is a, a string of gobbets, as it were. Uh, <laughs> right. Second Samuel twenty-one fifteen to twenty-two recounts David's men, his soldiers, uh, defeating four giants, uh, and these are really just fragments mentioning this person kills this giant and this person kills this giant, etc. The really the fossil remains again of maybe larger regional folk stories of the slaying of the giant, right? Uh, which again is like a very common plot around mm. world literature. In the third of these stories, uh, Elchanan, one of David's soldiers, who's from Bethlehem, kills Goliath. And this is kind of cryptic. I mean, is this the same Goliath? What are we doing here? I mean, how many yeah. Goliaths are there? How many <laughs> giants are named Goliath? Question mark. So in First Chronicles chapter 20, Verse five, uh, it attempts to smooth this out. Chronicles in general is sort of a later, uh, let's say, a consolidation of Davidic stories in, in large part that tries to kind of smooth over some of the bumps. So in this case, it says, well, actually, Elchanan killed Goliath's brother. <laughs> so we're talking about two different people and no big deal. Uh, but more likely, the reference to Elchanan is really a remnant of an earlier a more expansive saga of a folk hero uh, who's virtually forgotten outside of this reference. And I think, again, it's really important to look at how in the stories of 
really not stories, verses that recount the killing of these giants in Second Samuel. David's men do the killing, right. not David. So at a later point, the killing of Goliath was probably, most likely, uh, taken from the story of Elkanan and infused into the Davidic narrative to kind of, uh, again, create that drama and the climax of the three um, entry narratives, etc. Because it's really hard to imagine uh, it being the other way around. That is, a story associated with this very biblically central character of David somehow filtering into the story of an unknown person who's only mentioned mm-hmm. here named Elhanan. So again, what, what makes this really interesting is that it was Elhanan who killed Goliath at Nob, and that's where David will later find the sword of Goliath. Uh-huh. So it's just this strange aspect, this thing that's still a part of the, the Bible that tells us that, first of all, contradictions really don't matter to the biblical editors as they do to us. And second of all, that there were all of these story traditions and really um, tradition pools, as performance critics call them, that people were drawing from. And it was okay to take a story from here and give it to some other character and sort of weave these things together. There's nothing wrong about that. It's not inaccurate. It's just a beautiful way of telling stories. Mm. Well, okay. Well, this this goes even deeper. So we've 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 hinted at these uh, giant killing stories that come, you know, in our in our text of the Hebrew Bible, they come after the David and Goliath story that we know so well. But if you go into the David and Goliath story that we know so well, is there also evidence in there that that original story about David and Goliath wasn't even about him killing a giant? Was that Goliath? just, you know, a tall guy and a good warrior, but maybe not, you know, six cubits. Maybe he was a more reasonable four cubits. So tell us about, tell us about this. And what is a cubit? Oh, yeah. How we, long we have to tell everybody. I, I know, never remember my cubits. <laughs> so we're dealing with the, uh, the six cubits is about, uh, it's six cubits and a span, a span, which is about nine feet and nine inches. So we're dealing with Ooh, a true giant beyond human proportions. But as you mentioned, that's not the only height that Goliath receives in the Greek uh, Septuagint, right? Which kind of counterintuitively preserves an earlier version Mm. of the David and Goliath story than the Hebrew Bible itself. Has him at this kind of more human four cubits and a span or about six feet, nine inches. Like NBA level. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's within the realm of the human as it were. And in fact, that shorter, if we can call it shorter height, certainly shorter than nine feet, is also found in Josephus's telling Josephus. of the event and, you know, other, you know, ancient um, chroniclers, as mm-hmm. it were. So, you know, one possibility, as you're maybe alluding to, is that David originally fought a big guy, uh, you know, maybe to emphasize the unlikeliness of this small boy fighting a big man who's a seasoned soldier, who's got all the the skills and so forth. And then David just shows up with his little sling, which by the way is cheating in the context of single combat. Oh, it is? We'll, we'll, let that, we'll let that slide for now. Oh. The, <laughs> he, he subverted the, the rules of uh. engagement there. Uh, it's like bringing a, uh, 
a gun to a knife phone. Yeah, well, I was thinking, thinking that. It's like having a yeah. gun, isn't it? Because you can do it from a distance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so one possibility is that, you know, he's, there was an earlier version of him defeating a very seasoned, imposing soldier. And, you know, later, this true giant of Elchanan was read into this story and given the name Goliath, mm-hmm. etc. Um, another possibility, though, you know, if you don't like if you don't like that sort of thing, <laughs> you can just think of the the game of telephone again, or you know, the way that we tell stories, even our own stories. We might exaggerate details after telling a story uh, many times to make it a little more interesting, to maybe just uh, keep it fresh. We we exaggerate numbers very often when we're saying things. I read it a hundred times. I read it a thousand times. I've probably seen this a million times. Really? <laughs> but, you know, again, these exaggerated numbers do sort of fit the oral tradition model as well, even without having to, to look at Elchanan and the giant. That makes mm. sense. Yes. So we've talked a few times on the podcast about sort of when these stories get written down and i mean sort of exile seems to be the time that yeah. this all gets kind of put 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 onto paper so assuming that that's when you kind of think one and two samuel are getting written down too what what are the authors and, and editors doing why, why don't they compose a more sort of straightforward linear narrative why do they let all these competing versions just sort of exist are they i mean you said already that they're just not bothered about it and and even now that it's kind of a written form they're still not bothered are they yeah so uh, the way i think of it is you're you're correct in the sense of the exile post exile being the the time of editing and pulling all this kind of stuff together here we're talking really in the uh deuteronomic mold here in the sense of the deuteronomist around the 6th century bce and uh, maybe a little later than that as well um this particular uh sort of editorial school or scribal school that's pulling deuteronomy joshua judges and continuing into samuel and kings all of those books are kind of like you said being edited by maybe a scribal school so why are they including things that seem to contradict and elements that seem to be out of place and all of those kinds of things. Well, they're dealing with an assemblage or a patchwork of story arcs that go in different directions, heroic legends, poetry, ancient lists, prophetic uh, literature as well, trying to bring it all together. Some people say that the Bible is a masterpiece of editing. I think that's a, a good way of looking at it. But they're also, you know, doing it in a particular time and place. So it's not that they're just bringing in old stuff and mixing it together and trying to create a patchwork narrative out of it, which I think they do to to great success, despite the contradictions, etc. But they're also bringing in concerns and anxieties and polemics from their own day. So this gets us back to Goliath. Uh, specific, because in his description, in both the the Greek and the Hebrew, uh, he is essentially a Greek warrior. Hmm. He has bronze breastplate and a bronze spear and the shin guards made of bronze and and this amazing shield that he needs a shield bearer to carry. This is not a Philistine soldier Hmm. by any sort of understanding. 
We don't have evidence of Philistine soldiers looking like this. He's a later soldier. And in fact, Greek culture was in a sort of an upswing. It was catching Mm -hmm. on in Philistia in the 7th and 6th century uh, BCE. Again, around when this uh, Deuteronomistic school would have been editing these things together. So in a way, they are reimagining Goliath as their enemy of that period, Hmm. who is Greek influence or Greek inspired, Greek imitative, as it were. And in a sense, it becomes a polemic against Greek culture itself, which is kind of interesting because even the idea of single combat, the sort of larger battles or larger warfare being decided by a fight between one of your guys and one of our guys, that's a very Greek thing. That's very much out of sync with the biblical um, narratives in terms of how, how warfare is supposed to play out. So in a way, they're, they're almost making fun of the Greeks. Hmm. You got this very sturdy, you know, um, heavily armored, uh, very well seasoned, we can assume, soldier going up against this little boy who's crafty, but certainly not skilled in battle at this point. Um, and look, all we need is our little guy to topple the Greeks. You know, it's kind of an amazing way of looking at it. It's almost satirical from that standpoint. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I love that. I mean, I, and I love because we've talked about on the podcast before how this, you know, great kingdom of 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 Israel or you know Judah or whatever it was, you know, probably not that great, probably not that big, <laughs> certainly compared to some of the empires and maybe you know the Greeks at that moment. So they were very much the David figure, weren't, weren't they? That that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, and I I think you can see this underdog narrative because of course. David and Goliath becomes the quintessential underdog story. But Israel as a people always reading themselves into that underdog role. If you think in terms of just the archaeological context here, what we can um, draw from that region, the Philistines were much more sophisticated than the Israelites. Mm -hmm. They were much more uh, wealthy. They were the kind of the coastal elites. (laughs) The Israelites were the, the inland mountain people, mm-hmm. as it were. Um, and there was a lot of, I think, uh, jealousy and animosity that was felt there, sort of that class struggle in a way. So, you know, where do the Israelites get exact their revenge? Well, they tell of stories of, mm. you know, wars between the Philistines and Israelites that span for generations that probably never even happened, mm. according to the archaeological record. They tell of you know, little David defeating this enormous Philistine giant, you know, um, these kinds of stories are a way of exacting your sort of fantasy, um, mm. as it were. Like and much, much later, much, much later, it becomes true, doesn't it, with the, the Hasmonean story and Hanukkah and when the tiny little sort of Judeans do actually defeat the the Greeks sort of in the second <laughs> century BCE. So a yeah, long time later. But that 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 story, that that sort of self-identity as the the, the the underdog who who's gonna defeat. I mean that that just that proves so sort of um so it just lasts for such a long time. Yeah. And I think that's really what makes these stories valuable in a way. It's not necessarily their historical veracity or lack thereof. Mm. And to me, that doesn't even matter. Um, from a historical standpoint, what's interesting is 
how these stories come together, why they were told, how they were told, what their purpose was in their time and place, and also kind of the transmission history, sort of the history of reception, as it were, and why it is that these stories are still relevant. Partly what you're saying is that these are inspirational stories. And just as you know, the, the redactors and the editors were finding ways of reading themselves into these stories, as we're talking about in their contemporary time and place, don't we do the same today? I think that's the big takeaway and the value of kind of keeping an ancient piece of literature alive for so long and reading it and rereading it and reinterpreting it. And every reading is an interpretation. And every time you read it, you're going to find something else. That's not a new thing, right? It's not a new thing in our day. It's not even a new thing that begins with the written word. It's a thing that existed in the oral tradition as well. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, that that pulls it together very nicely. Thank you, Jonathan. All right, before we let you go, and this is something we did not do last time because the time machine was we were still in the like the last development stage, but now it is working for season two of the podcast. So this is your chance. You get to get behind the controls and choose where and when you would want to go anytime in the past or the future. We had a recent guest that wanted to go to the future. So what what's it gonna be, Jonathan? Where where are you gonna go? Well, this maybe isn't the answer you're looking for, but <laughs> I don't want to mess with the timeline too much. Mm. I'm, I'm a little bit uh, safe when it comes to time travel. Okay. So <laughs> I think I'd just go back to like 1986 and go to a Toys R Us and buy up as many G.I. Joe action figures and accessories as I could, bring them back to the present day, keep mm. some of them and sell the rest on eBay. Uh, so a money-making scheme don't you yeah all right yeah i I understand not wanting to mess with the timeline because my thing would always be like it's the back to the future style where you go back and you bet on some you know underdog game that's going to come in your favor or something like you make a bunch of money but okay you're going to do collectible yeah toys is gi joe is is it is it that big now like people pay money for that stuff oh yeah it's uh definitely with my generation uh It's it's uh, one of those nostalgic <laughs> things where people want to rebuy their childhood. Yeah. And I think the, the reason why it's a safe thing, as you're alluding to, these are mass-produced things that would have been sold to somebody else anyway. It's not like I'm going to mess not up gonna the, notice. the universe yeah. by just, you know, going, ah, going and buying this. Who knows that one small child who doesn't get the <laughs> oh, toys all right, well, and then he turns into becomes the next of, despot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I wouldn't get... Maybe I'd have a, a rule mm. that I wouldn't buy a toy if it was the only one in the store, but only if there are multiples, something like I would try yeah. to do be as safe as possible, knowing that You've every really time. Well, he's, yeah, he's clearly seen a lot of science fiction movies. He knows. He knows what can go wrong. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. Uh, the name of his book, again, about about exactly what we were talking about today is called Goliath as Gentle Giant. Sympathetic portrayals in popular culture, and of course, please go check out Jonathan's uh, podcast, Amusing Jews. It is amusing and is informative and entertaining, and you could do it on YouTube if you want to. It's it's a lot of fun. All right, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode of Biblical Time Machine. Bye. Bye. One more thing, time travelers, remember that if you want to be like Shelly and win a free copy of the SBL Study Bible, all you have to do is subscribe to our Patreon. We call it the Time Travelers Club. The link is in the show description below. 
Everyone who signs up for the Time Travelers Club will be in the running for one of ten copies of the SBL Study Bible. It's an incredible resource worth, I think, $40. So save yourself $40, get this incredible book, and support this podcast. Without our subscribers, we couldn't make this happen. So thanks to everyone who has subscribed, and we're going to keep giving away books over the next weeks. See you next time.